Well, we are working our way through the book of Colossians, and we just have gotten started, and today we find ourselves in ver- and, uh, verses 9 through 14. And Lord, open our hearts to hear all that you are saying to the church today, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, how to pray for a friend, or how to pray for one another, Paul's going to give us that Mature guidance as we observe him in his prayer time. Just a reminder, this is Colossae, a tiny church in the Lycus Valley of Asia Minor at that time today, Turkey. It was never visited by Paul. Uh, He never met the church personally. But a guy named Epaphras, most likely when Paul was in Ephesus, a couple hundred miles away, about a hundred miles away, um, probably got saved in Ephesus, was a pagan himself, and went back to Colossae and ended up starting the church there. They were having some serious heresy issues, and that's what Paul's going to be mainly addressing through this letter as we move forward. In verses 9 through 14 today, for this reason, he's, this is a prayer, We also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time or you've never really taken the time to meditate, it's, it sounds like, wow, I didn't catch too much of that. And this is why we go verse by verse, to hopefully break it down so each of those phrases and each of those words create a life, create a, a picture in your mind. And so as you go to pray it, it's not because it's memorized in your head. It's because it's something that God's revealed in your heart. Paul says, I pray. And Paul says, I ask. The word in prayer here is um, the word to also worship. And it's in the continually pray. And then to ask, it's a deep word, to beg I'm worshiping God. I'm praying for you. I'm begging God without stop praying for you. He said this in verse 3, remember, praying always for you. Now, just to help you break it down, there are five things he asks. One is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Also, they would walk worthy of the Lord. They would be fruitful in every good work. They would be increasing in their knowledge of God, and they'd be strengthened for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So let's take a look at verse 9. For this reason, what reason? He Remember, they had believed in the gospel. They had love for one another. They had love for the saints. And Paul says, because you are born-again believers, we have not ceased to pray for you. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of 
His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Since the day we heard that Colossae had a church and that you believed the gospel, that you had a love for the saints, me and Timothy have been praying continually for you guys. I love Paul's attitude towards this. It wasn't a casual thing. As you come to mind, I pray for you. No. They were praying constantly. I think that's what Paul did for hours and hours and hours in those prisons. Wasn't a lot to do, write letters and pray. I remember when Corey Timboom called Chuck Smith and, and said, I'm bedridden, I can't continue to go around the world and, and preach uh, and tell people my story of how God, you know, if you're in the deep, deepest, deepest hole, God's there. I've been there in the in. Um, a Nazi concentration camp. And Chuck said, okay, now that you're in bed, you're like Paul in prison. You're just going to pray for all of the seeds that you've planted over the last many, many decades. And it would all germinate. And this is Paul now. He's praying for churches. He started and he's praying now for churches he didn't start that he's never even met. And of course, the Bible tells us concerning spiritual things especially prayer, to pray without ceasing. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. I think the chiefest of all goods we can do in this human flesh is pray. And of course, Galatians 6.9, let us not grow weary in doing good. In due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. So maybe you've been praying somebody for days or years or even decades. I just say to you, don't give up. Remember when they asked Jesus how to pray, his main point was persistence, right? In Luke 11, he said the guy comes to him at night, wakes him up, said, I need some bread. And the guy said, go away. And he, he, the guy didn't go away. And finally, because the guy wouldn't go away, he got up and gave him all the bread that he desired. And then also in, in Luke 18, where, where Jesus, the woman who came to the judge, who didn't fear God nor respect man, but he finally said, not because I've changed. I still don't fear God. I still don't like people. But because you're wearing me out, I will do what this widow wants. And Jesus says, I say to you, I tell this parable to you, that you always pray and not lose heart. And so here Paul is saying, we're praying for you night and day. We're not giving up. We're not stopping. Um, now, before we get started on the details of this prayer, I want to make a note what Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for specific needs. He doesn't pray that they would get healthy or that physical need or that owie, or he doesn't pray for their finances, or he doesn't pray that uh, they don't get persecuted for a while. None of those things. Paul's focus in prayer is on spiritual growth, spiritual strengthening, spiritual gain. And so he says, I ask this, I ask that you would, first of all, be filled with the knowledge of his will. Isn't that the lifelong pursuit? Just like Jesus taught us every day when we come to pray, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done. Of course, if you don't know English real, that good and you say it real quick, it can sound like my kingdom come, my will be done. You know, I want the bigger house. I want the millions of dollars. I want my kingdom to come now. Well, I get a kingdom later. Yeah, but now and later sounds better to me. Now, it's not my kingdom, my will. It's thy kingdom, thy will. 
I, I think in particular, we need wisdom in how to pray. In John, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have petition that we have asked of him. So interesting here. He now says, if when we pray those prayers that are in his will, he, he, he hears us or acknowledges it. I think this is in contrast because in the Gospel of John, he tells these little antidotes on prayer. But in John, I think he just assumes people understood what the apostles understood. And that was prayer is not a means by which to get my will done. Prayer is always a means to get God's will done. And the apostles, I think, understood that. That's why, for example, I think people misunderstood. And this is why I don't think Paul, uh, John qualified it. And like, for example, in John 14, 12 and 14, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also in greater works than these. Will he do? Because I go to my Father. And then he says this, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I, I remember years ago in the gym, uh, I led a, a young guy to the Lord and, and I got him reading the Bible. And, and one day he was there and, and he was outside the gym. I think he had been waiting maybe a very long time for me to show up. And as soon as he grabbed me, he's like, is this true? And he read me this verse out of the Gospel of John. And you could see the dollar signs in his eyes. He thought he found a magic genie. And I said, yes, that's true. And you know, the same writer, John, also wrote about prayer in 1 John 5. And when he read, according to God's will, he hears us. He's like, oh, I knew there would be fine print. There's no fine print. That we would pray and understand when we pray that we would know the heart of God, the mind of God, and we'd be praying in the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's will. And so he says in particular, the knowledge of God in all wisdom. Wisdom is, is the understanding of that knowledge and how to apply it. But it always comes back to this, the nature of God. If you don't get the nature of God right, you won't be praying in the heart of God, in the spirit of God. Right? God is who he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? James says in him there's no shadow of turning. There's, no, there's not going to be one day where God says, well, I've grown and I've changed. I used to hate that, but now I love it. Or I used to love that, and now I hate it. There's no such thing. God's nature. And so when we come into Christ and we're born again into that kingdom, we now need to be birds of a feather flocking together with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our life now as we walk, as we live, as we pray is in the same spirit as Christ himself. So the key is 
learning the nature of God. Where do we learn that? Bible. It's in the word of God. This is why we need to be diligent to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. Also, the word of God is God-breathed. The Bible's God-breathed. And it's for us that we'd be fully complete, prepared for every good work, including prayer. And then he says it, spiritual understanding. So you would have knowledge of God's will. You would have the wisdom of God. And now the spiritual understanding. Spiritual. In the spirit, we would have that revelation of how to walk in it. Remember in 1 Corinthians 2.10, he says, God has revealed to us the, what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has even entered in the heart of man. God has revealed things that he has never revealed before. He's going to reveal in the future to those who what? Are in the Spirit. And he's going to reveal them through the Spirit. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 to 13 to say this. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In the Greek there, that little phrase, it's literally spiritual, spiritual. So some translations say spiritual things with spiritual things or spiritual words or spiritual words or just, but literally it's spirit with spirit. So when we come to pray, we want to be in the spirit. What's that mean? To be thinking the way God thinks, to be in God's, attuning God's will and God's desire to understand in the same way this is the power of Jesus in prayer. Over a dozen times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, of myself I do nothing. Only as I hear the Father speak do I speak. Only as I see the Father do, do I do. Of myself I do nothing. Saying as a man in humble flesh, 100% man, he was in line with the Father, in the will of the Father. So knowledge, wisdom, understanding. You'll see these three in particular when you study through the book of Proverbs. And, and this is something Paul often prayed for, except especially, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and 5, I think, my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And this is what he says in verse 5 that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. There's a prayer. He'd be enriched in all utterance and all knowledge. In Ephesians 1, verse 17 and 18, that the God of our Father, of Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and the inheritance of the saints. So to get the knowledge, the data, you got to study the word of God. You got to know it. The wisdom then comes how to apply that knowledge. And then understanding is the ability to practically carry it out and do it. Now in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Now, you would not believe how many people read verse 10 and feel condemned. They feel like, oh, I hate when this says that. Because I don't walk in a manner worthy. I'm not fully pleasing God. I'm not bearing fruit the way I should. And then they go, I don't even know if I'm saved. I, 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 I think, because I, I, I'm struggling so much with my flesh and I'm having such a hard time to have a desire to read the Bible and pray and go to church and, and, and want the will of God. I, I, oh, I hate this. I, I, I'm, I give up. I'll never walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. I'll never fully please him. There's from time to time I please him, but, and, and I'm just not the fruitful person. Guys, do you, do you think the Lord wrote this to, to slap you, <laughs> to discourage you, to condemn you? Do you think that was his intention here? Of course it wasn't. That's nonsense. He's saying that this is the kind of thing we can pray for one another. But let me tell you, I have four kids. And my kids fully please me. Even when they're horrible. Now, it doesn't mean they don't get disciplined. I don't smack them. But there's never a moment in my life where I am like, this kid is not worthy to have my last name. Change your name. This kid is not worthy to come for Thanksgiving. Don't come down to the house. Yeah, You see what I'm saying? If we being evil can have such a love for our kids, isn't God's love for us a zillion times more than we can even know or imagine? I'm going to tell you, here, here is how you can be unworthy and displeasing to God. To not trust his love for you. To minimize, well, Jesus bled on the cross, but I don't think he can forgive my sins today. Walk in the light as he is in the light, and what? You won't be sinning. It's not what it says, is it? In 1 John 1. Walk in the light as he is in the light, and the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all sin. If you are like going, the blood of Christ is dried up. It no longer applies to me. Or you come into the throne of the grace, not boldly, in faith, knowing you're God's child. But if you come to that throne, oh, I don't know, I'm so unworthy. God, please forgive me. I beg you, I beg you, I beg you. Okay, you're walking in a manner unworthy now. Because you are thinking that God's love for you is not that great. If you think that Jesus on the cross, it is almost finished except for Brian's sins in, 19, or in 2022. Those I can't take care of. Mm -mm. If you say that Christ's blood is still not flowing today to cleanse you from all sin, if you say the cross didn't really have the power to forgive all your sins. Yeah. God doesn't love me as much as he loves other people because they're good people. They're good Christians. I'm a horrible Christian. You see, that's ridiculous. 
to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's just walking by faith. Remember, they came to Jesus in John 6 saying, well, what is the works in which we must do to please God? Remember what Jesus said? There is one work, and that's to believe in him whom God sent. So you want to fully please God? Believe Jesus on the cross. It is finished. All your sins have been paid for. You want, to be fully believe, you want to be fully pleasing to him? Come boldly into that throne word of grace. Say, God, forgive me. Give me grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. I'm your kid. Yes, Satan, I'm a lemon, but he picked it. Jesus, I come. And I don't think you're only wanting to forgive me a little bit. You've already Drown me in your love and forgiveness. Do you see? Is God up there going, oh, okay, let me sort through this. I'll forgive that one, but not that one. I will forgive that one, that one. Not these five, though. No way. Is God stingy in loving you? Is God reluctant to forgive you? I mean, if your child fell out of a tree and broke his leg when you've been telling him 10 times not to be climbing that high in the tree, and he's laying there with a broken leg, what's your action? Well, forget it. It's on you now. I told you not to climb the tree. Are you going to be smothering them with love and help? Do you not care about their disobedience? I could care less if they didn't listen. The only thing that concerns me is that they get better, Right? So you are always pleasing God just because you're his kid. You are always walking in a manner worthy of the Lord if you just fully believe that he finished it. He conquered all my sin, all the sin of the whole world. That Christ, every time I see him, he's got a giant smile and he's loving me. The Father loves me more than any. And when I come to that throne of grace, he drowns me in love and mercy and kindness. When we come to communion, we don't want to come going, I'm so unworthy to eat of the bread or drink of the juice. I, I'm, so, I'm such a sinner. I, I'm afraid God might kill me because I'm so unworthy. No. What, what's not taking communion in a worthy way? Not believing God fully. Minimizing Christ. Saying Christ can't keep loving me. To say his sins, my sins aren't all conquered. To picture the Father irritated at me and not wanting me to come into his throne room of grace. This is what Satan wants you to think. That, 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 that he wants to get you to think there's a clog in the pipe and the clog in the pipe is God's attitude towards you. You disgust me, but I forgive you because I have to. I'm God. Get out of here. No. What is he talking here about? He's gone from the area of justification. We're back in the notes now. <laughs> gone from the area of justification to the area of sanctification. Do you understand that? Justification is you're born again. You're saved. Sanctification it's going to be entirely done on the cross. It's already been finished. In, in Hebrews 10, 14, 
Through the one sacrifice, he has perfected forever those he's now sanctifying. Sanctification is us living a sanctified separate life to God, like the holy utensils in the priest uh, temple, in the Jewish temple, that we're a shovel or a candlestick, whatever, that only is used in a holy way. That we would do that while we're in this body. And, and then when we die, we're immediately entirely sanctified in our brand new bodies with the Lord. So it's this period of time right now. So let's not confuse the issue by saying Paul's talking about our justification. So if you're not walking the manner worthy of the Lord, if you're not fully pleasing God, then maybe you're not saved. And that's why I'm, I'm saying this to you. You need to double check to see if you're really, really saved because I don't think you are. Is that what Paul's trying to say here? But yet I know so many Christians that read that verse that way. This is a litmus test of whether I'm really saved or not. And I, I go through it. Walking in men are worthy. Check. No. Fully pleasing him. Check. No. Fruitful in every good work. Check. No. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Check. No. I fell the test. So maybe I'm not really saved. That is not the meaning of this verse. This verse is sanctification. In other words, he's saying, now that you're born again, here are some things that you want to shoot for. And aim, here's the target you want to aim at. This is what you want to try to be hitting. I, I know when I used to really work out a lot and be a bodybuilder, I was with some guys working out, and then we hit a point where I really wasn't lifting more weights or getting bigger. And then I started spotting for this other group of guys, and I'd listen to them, watch the way they worked out, and boom, I started growing again. And I, and I realized that there was a whole nother level of being able to learn how to be a bodybuilder that this group of guys had no knowledge. And getting with these guys, they shot me up. So in the same way, if you're around Christians who are not shooting at this target, to walk fully in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him in every way. If you're not around, you're shooting at a different target. That's a much lower target. And then you're wondering why you're never growing. You need to get with guys. And Paul is saying, these are the kind of guys you want to get around who are shooting at this kind of target. I just want to make a real quick note. I have a lot of scriptures on this. We're not going to look at them, but they're there for you. And this is the point. That born-again Christians that are going to heaven, it is possible for them to still not walk as they ought to walk. And, and again, this is something about a born-again believer that is reality. That the day after you become a Christian, you still have the full spectrum of choice. You know, you don't wake up the morning after all things have passed away, all things are new, your bank account is back at zero, you're, you have no bills you have to pay, everybody at work is different and you're different and there's no traffic on the freeway and ooh, you know, it's just, everything's new. You still have the complete free will of choice. And, and whether you do God's will or not do God's will, 
is 100% up to you. Yes, the Holy Spirit's in you and strengthening you, but he will not force you. You know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm going to watch the news and the Holy Spirit shuts it off. And all of a sudden my Bible flies across the room, lands in my lap. And then my neck gets stuck and froze and I can only read. And then when I'm done, no, the Holy Spirit's done. I'm... There's people that almost believe Christianity is that way. I've had people, especially in Calvinism, who tell me, well, I was sinning, but I think it was God's will that I sinned because he taught me so much about mercy and grace. Well, I didn't go to church, but if God wanted me there, I would have been there. Right? It's ridiculous. So there are Christians, and there's so many examples in the New Testament we're guys who are born again and are doing horrible things. The Apostle Peter, remember in Galatia? When, when the Jews from Jerusalem showed up, all of a sudden he got kosher. As soon as they left, bring out the bacon. And it was stumbling the Gentiles. And Paul finally, it sounds like he had confronted him on this a few times, finally just laid into him and rebuked him in front of everybody. There's another man who actually married his stepmother got his dad to divorce her, and then he married her. And Paul says, even the Gentiles think this is wrong. And if the heathen of the world are judging you and they're right, something's wrong. The church, you should not be rejoicing. The church's mindset, it was heresy, but the church's mindset is live and not live, you know? We just accept anybody no matter what. And Paul said, absolutely not. The next time you get back together, rebuke that guy, kick him out of the church, my spirit with you, and, and we're going to turn him over to Satan. He's still God's child, but he's going to be outside the umbrella of the protection, uh, of the spiritual protection of the church. Kick him out, that his body is destroyed, that Satan might destroy his body, that his soul will be saved. But of course, that guy did eventually repent. In 1 Timothy, there were some guys that were full-on teaching heresy. And Paul says that they've shipwrecked regarding the faith. But the same thing, it says, Timothy, don't get caught up in this. I'm going to name them, Hermenidius and Alexander, whom, just like in 1 Corinthians 5, I delivered them to Satan, notice this last phrase, that they may learn not to blaspheme that they may learn it. You, does, is God teaching non-Christians? <laughs> is God teaching people that are of Satan? Of course not. He's only teaching his kids. So here these guys are heretics, but they're still born again. They're still God's children. They need to repent. In Thessalonica, there were guys that were actually teaching, forget sanctification. If you sin, just ask God and just live the way you want. Just, just go party all weekend and just... Repent on Sunday. I, I can't tell you how many Catholics left Catholicism because of the hypocrisy. They literally would go out and send their heads off, but they would get into the last moments of confessional late Saturday night so they had a clean slate Sunday morning to go to church. And they always knew that was wrong, but that was the deal. That was how it worked. And, um, and Paul says, no, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. 
We know the Corinthian church. Paul says to them, you guys were carnal, like babes in Christ. I couldn't give you meat, only milk. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 3 to say, you guys are in jeopardy of having no rewards in heaven. Uh, The foundation is Jesus Christ. That's not going to change no matter how fruitless you are. But he's telling them there are people that are going to be in heaven that only the slab (laughs) there. Not even one row of bricks because they have not walked in sanctification. Their souls are saved, but they have no reward in heaven. So what am I trying to say here? That there are people that are not walking in sanctification and they're not going to have rewards in heaven. But yet at the same time, there's no sense of condemnation. Paul is not saying here, by the way, if you're not walking in a manner worthy, if you're not fully pleasing him, if you're not fulfilling every good work, if you're not increasing in the knowledge of God, you should be condemned by God and all the holy angels. Does he say anything like that? No, he's trying to encourage them, not condemn them. So there's many more examples that could be given, but the bottom line is that we're not told by Paul to wonder or to doubt if we're saved or not. That would understand that God saved them, and it's not just for the next life, but God has saved us for this life as well, in order that we would bear good fruit, be the light of the world, and we'd store up our treasure in heaven. So fully pleasing him. You know what? Fully pleasing him. Jesus, did you guys know that? And in John 8, 29, Jesus said, for I always do the things that please him. And the father concurred. In Matthew three seventeen. this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, as a 100% man, no advantage, even though he was God in spirit, he took no advantage. He did live a life that was pleasing fully to God. So the question you might ask is, how can I be fully pleasing to God? How can I do this? Well, the question is, are we seeking to do that? Are you waking up thinking, today, I want to live my life fully pleasing to God? You need to ask yourself that question. If you're not, you're probably not, right? If you're not thinking the thought, am I fully pleasing God? You're probably not. Listen to Romans 8. This is rather harsh, but true. In Romans 8, 5 through 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Listen to this. So so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There has to be a clear trying to aim and hit at that target. If not, we probably are walking in the flesh and we won't be pleasing God. I think all of this melts down to this. One simple question. Am I loving God? You know, the Bible says, 
This is the first and the greatest commandment. The rest of the whole Bible can be erased and the whole Old Testament can be erased and thrown into the trash. And all you need is this one phrase, to love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So some might spend their lives asking, what's right? What's wrong? Is that carnal? How far can I go without sinning? You know, I I can't tell you as a youth pastor, it's like, how far can I go with my girlfriend without actually sinning? Where is that? And it's like, you understand your your question is carnal. (laughs) You should be asking, how can I wash her in the word? How can I have Bible studies with her? How can I pray for her more effectively? You see, it was a carnal mind to begin with. The question is, what are the things that are pleasing to the Father? And can I love God today with my all? And so is it carnal? Isn't it carnal? Ask the question, is God going to feel like I'm loving him in doing that? Or is God going to feel like I'm not loving him in doing that? It's really not a fine little picky picky um, (laughs) things, is it? We know how to love God, then to be fruitful in every good work. Jesus said, abide in him and his words, and the Father be glorified that we bear much fruit. So what's good fruit? More. To seek God to be more fruitful than you've ever been before. So do you think these are things that we can just wake up and say, God, today my aim is to fully please you. Lord, today help me to only do the things that please you. Lord, today I want to be fruitful in every good work and then increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the word epigonosco, which is knowledge through experience. So interesting, in verse 9, he says, for the knowledge of God's will. But now in verse 10, he says, the knowledge of God himself. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, for thus says the Lord, let it not the wise man glory in wisdom or the mighty man glory in his might or the rich man glory in his riches, but let us glory in this. This is, this is it right here, that he understands and knows me. What is our main responsibility? To know God, to know his heart, to know his mind, know what he hates, know what he loves to know what's pleasing, to know what's not pleasing, to know him. You know, when we get to heaven, we're not gonna pop into heaven going, hey, there's Jesus, let me see if I can get his autograph. Maybe I can get a picture with him. And we walk up to Jesus going, Jesus, so nice to meet you. Uh, I'm Brian, um, just got here. Is that the way it's gonna be? I hope not. I hope we're loving Jesus every day. We're talking to him every day. And when we see him, it's, it's somebody that we know so deeply. And he, he knows us so deeply because you shared your life with him. And you hug him and don't let go. I had a dream like that one time. And, and I, I just, Jesus looked at me. I looked at him and I was like, and I grabbed him and I wouldn't let him go. And he wasn't letting me go. And I didn't want to let go. You know, sometimes you sort of let up a little bit when you're hugging somebody. Gives them the clue to let up a little bit, like this this time's over. There was no 
thought in my mind, I'm ever letting this go. And I could tell there was no thought in his mind that he was ever going to let me go. It was just the most amazing thing. So again here, to know him, to, have, to truly know him by experience. And of course, again, this comes mainly through the word of God. When does God normally speak to us? When does God give us revelations of him? It's when we're in the word, right? Delight in the word. You know, in Psalms 1, it, it, it's basically saying, make yourself delight in the word. Make yourself love it more and more and more. And that, you'll be like a tree planted by the river of water. You'll bear fruit in your season. Your leaves won't wither. Whatever you do will prosper. The greatest blessing is attached to the one spiritual duty. That's the greatest. Right? The, you can't do better than everything you do will prosper. There's not a better blessing above that one. And it's not attached to worship or prayer or evangelism. It's attached to meditating in his word day and night. Of course, in Joshua 1, it's the same thing. If you don't let it escape from your mouth, you don't let it get away from you, you're chewing on it day and night, you will have good success and prosper in all that you do. Well, verse 11, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, strengthen with all might, it's actually the root word dunamai. We know that word, don't we? Dynamite. But he uses it twice. It's strengthen dynamite with all dynamite. <laughs> it, it literally is saying power with all power, strengthened with all strength, perhaps even better, enabled with all ability. You see, that's really the sense that you are empowered supernaturally by God's spirit to do power. Isn't that what he says in Acts 1.8? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you, and then I will make you witnesses. What did Jesus say to the apostles? I will make you fishers of men. The concept of dunamai, more than anything, is God giving you the ability, but a powerful ability. So what we can't do, God's Spirit will give us that power. So think about it. If I'm walking in a way that pleases the Lord, I'm seeking to, to bear more fruit. I'm seeking to grow in the knowledge of him. And, and now I'm, I'm coming to, to say, Lord, I love you and I want to be a greater, greater witness. Lord, I love you and I want to live holier. That God's spirit now, because we're in the will of God, we can now have the will of God. So let me ask you this. If you're not in the will of God, but you're asking for the will of God, can he give the will of God to you? Don't you first have to be in his will to then hear and know what his will is? It doesn't make sense, right? You, you, you have to first become a person of his will. And now I am in that road, that narrow road that leads to life. Now I can know his will. But if I'm over here living in the flesh, living in sin, and then can God reveal his will to me? He's going to say, okay, here's my will. Be in my will. <laughs> Live a life in my will. And then we can talk specifically about things that are my will. But all of my will is done in the street 
the narrow road that I've given you to walk in. None of my will is over there where you'll find it as you live in sin, right? So will is always connected, first being a person of God's will, then the ability to walk and to know specifically God's will. And then he says, according to his glorious power, power and glory, power and glory, to know his power and glory or his glorious power. Boy, just just let this wash you in Revelation 5.13. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and are and all that's in them heard saying, blessing and honor, and here it is, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. Yes, you get that picture? We're all there, blessing and power and glory and honor. That glorious power he wants you to have right now. He wants you to have the glorious power while you're in this little tiny window of sanctification. From the day you were born again until the day you leave this earth. He wants you to have his glorious power. The same power that we're going to be singing about when we get to heaven. He wants you to know it and walk in it right now. For all patience and long-suffering with joy. The word patience is actually um, hupomane. And it's actually two Greek words. Hupo, to remain and mone, which is under, to remain under the load, under the weight, under the stress. That God's glorious power would cause you to raise the dead and walk on water and do miracles. No, that God's glorious power would cause you to remain under the weight. For many, that's persecution. For Paul, that was imprisonment. And then long-suffering, a longevity, a long enduring. When you think about patience and long suffering, it sort of breaks down. Patience, referring to people, long suffering, referring to the circumstances. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So the goal is be able to endure for a very long time, and keeping the joy. And then in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. Giving thanks. Boy, this is Paul is always doing this, right? In Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 1, 3, we just saw it. Giving thanks to the Father. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love Psalm 100, verse 4. You know this one. It's actually a song. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Thanksgiving is the gate in which we enter God's presence. And then to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. I don't think this is going to hit us till we're in heaven. But guys, it's going to happen in an instant. I remember when I was about five, six years old, my sister, Judy, my oldest sister, was a lot older, almost 10 years older. 
And she had these books. We, were all, we all were looking at our books for school that year. And we all had our little kindergarten first grade books. And my sister pulls out of her backpack these things that were just giant. The history and the math. And, and I was looking at that going, impossible. <laughs> that would take 10 lifetimes just in the one course. And she said, time you get to high school, this won't seem so bad. And I blinked, and I was graduating from high school. And, I, and it's so weird. I'm graduating from high school, and I have this surreal moment where I go back in time. And it's like going to high school was a lifetime away, and now I just graduated from high school. And I just remember those two instances going, what happened between that? Literally, literally 15 years have gone by in a blink. Guys, you're going to be up in heaven going, Brian, you preached about this. Here we are. There's Abraham. There's Isaac. Hey, I just played ping pong with Noah. <laughs> We're just going to be there looking at the angels, looking at all these men of God, looking at all of those who have died before us, our family members that we love so much. The Father has already, now notice this important word, qualified past tense. It's already done. It's in one moment. If you are qualified to go to heaven, it's not going to happen over an extended period of time. It happens in one instance. Are you qualified to go to heaven? Well, I, you know, I'm sort of weighing that out. I think I got another 10 years to see if I can pick my speed up and do better, not sin as much as I used to and, and live a better life. Nobody gets qualified that way. Nobody in heaven is going to get there because of an extended amount of time observing their life. The only way people are qualified to be in heaven is in one second, one instance, one moment. Boy, I, I, I put in our notes there, Revelation 5, verse 9 through 14, the whole thing. We don't have time to go through that, but how glorious it is to see all the people of God praising Jesus. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us in the kingdom of the son of his love. The same thing, look at the word delivered. It's in one moment, at one point, instantly it happened. In one moment, you were qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And in one moment, you were delivered from the power of darkness. In one moment, you were conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. You see, it's by faith alone, just like the thief on the cross. In one moment, that thief who had sinned his whole life, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. At that second, he was delivered from the powers of darkness. Satan no longer had power over him. In that moment, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's conveyed in his son, the beloved son of Jesus. In that moment, he's going to experience all the glories of heaven. One commentator called him the ultimate thief. <laughs> He, he stilled his whole life, but then he stole the greatest prize, heaven, the moment before he died. 
He is a great thief, but he's there because of God's love and grace. And he had faith. His hands were tied, his feet were tied. It wasn't a matter of proving himself after he believed. The moment he believed, he was qualified. The moment he believed, he was delivered from that power. Man, do you guys remember how dark it was? John 3 talks about how we love darkness rather than the light because our deeds were evil. Ephesians says he has made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, just as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you realize that, guys? If we could see into the future as God can, he already sees you seated together with him in heavenly places. So you thought, when I said, Jesus, forgive my sin and be my savior, you thought, oh, I'm born again, I'm sorry, going to church, I'm reading the Bible, and praying. You had no idea you were already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You had no idea that you were qualified for the Hall of Fame, to be in heaven with all those who believed. You had no idea that you were delivered from Satan permanently, from his powers of darkness ever grabbing a hold of your heart again and controlling you. You had no idea that you were conveyed in that moment into the arms of Jesus, our husband, who loves us so much. Jesus actually talks about this power of darkness when he was getting arrested. He said, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And of course, Satan, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us Satan was ignorant, not thinking he was actually getting one over God, but it was actually God getting ready to conquer Satan. And we were conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. We are in him right now. We are on the throne seated together with him right now. We are with, we are qualified equal to the most holiest guy who's ever walked on this earth. Whoever that is. Is that Enoch? Moses? Whoever that guy is. You are equally qualified. He's not going to have a brighter crown or a more illustrious garment. He's not going to look holier or more righteous. You are equal, just like that thief on the cross that believed. We're all going to be equally righteous, equally glorious, equally sitting upon the throne, equally communing with Christ. Isn't that amazing? We need to come and live in that reality by faith. Jesus says in John 17, 20, I do not pray for these alone, but I also pray for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, and me, I in you. They also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me for the glory which you gave me. Look at here. I have given them. Wow. 
that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, they may be perfected in one that the world may know that you've sent me. And Jesus says, let's go back up to verse seven, verse 20. I don't pray for these alone, but also those who believe in me through their word. And now look at the last phrase here. I have loved them as you have loved me. Try to picture right for a moment how much love the father has for the son. That's exactly how much love Jesus has for the least of us. Whoever the least is, you are qualified to be partakers in the same way. Well, verse 14, I know you're sad. We're coming to the last verse. We could take a vote and I could keep going if you want. Enough, Ryan, stop this thing. Okay, here we go. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Oh my goodness. Redemption is, is literally the purchase by buying, paying the price that's required for a slave to be set free. Literally, that's what it's talking about. That payment for our souls to be made righteous and perfect, holy, without blame. What would that take? I stand one person up here and I say, Father, this guy's a horrible sinner. I don't want you to just save him and take him to heaven. No, I want you right now to make him holy as you are, as righteous as Jesus is. I want you to make him as holy as the holy of holies and the Holy Spirit can come and start living in him right now. Yeah, why in this horrible sinful body? Yes, with all his failures and sins and shortcomings and difficulties. Yeah, I do realize that he's going to struggle with sin almost every day until the day he dies. But I want you right now to give him the glory of Jesus Christ. What would that cost me? (laughs) by, By the way, what's the price? Could we pay it? Could anyone pay it? Could the entire population of the earth pay it? Nobody can pay such a price for even one person. But Christ paid the price. God so loved us. He sent his only begotten son. And Jesus alone could pay the price. But it was a gigantic price. Was it not? to bear all our sins, bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our will being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could never pay such a debt. Boy, Peter nails it in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. Knowing that we are not redeemed corruptible things like silver or gold, but what? But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We need a perfect lamb that also is an eternal being. Jesus, because he was God, everything he did was for all times, past, present, and future. 
But because Jesus was 100% in human flesh, he could be our substitute. He had to be fully God, without sin, and fully man. And here's the final phrase, and the forgiveness of sins. What's this talking about? The release from bondage or imprisonment. Forgiving, being pardoned. Interesting, the root of the word here, aphesis, the root of that is aphimai. And the actual root of forgiveness is the word to send away. It's sort of mind-boggling, isn't it? The actual root of forgiveness is to send away. What's it talking about? Exactly what the Bible tells us, like in Psalms 103, as far as the east is to the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, he sent them away. He's buried, he's cast them into the deepest sea to never be discovered again in the depths of the ocean. Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Do we get this? He scattered, he sent away our sins to never be able to be retrieved. He buried them in the deepest sea, never being able to be gotten to again. And he will never remember our sins. What does forgiveness mean? That we are as white as snow. That Jesus Christ himself daily is cleaning we got a lot of mildew and dust particles falling all over us, right? He's daily dusting things. He's daily vacuuming. But what's it say in Ephesians 5? That he himself is looking at the bride. He is washing her and cleansing her nonstop. She'll be white as snow, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle on that day when we go to meet our maker So finishing up here, how can we pray for one another? First of all, let's just do it. Let's pray for each other. Let's walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let us know the word of God, that we might know the will of God, and more importantly, that we might know God himself. It is a time to examine our life. Am I walking in a manner worthy? Am I growing in the knowledge of God? Am I truly thankful and living a life of a heart of thankfulness? You know, I think if we were with Paul at a prayer meeting, he would be thankful. It would just be almost a celebration as well as prayer. Thankful for the redemption we have from the gift of Jesus Christ and thankful for the gift forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of the cross. Lord, thank you for this day, for being able to worship in such a wonderful way and song. Thank you for communion. And we were able to come to your table and celebrate with you that which one day we'll do face to face in heaven. And Lord, we thank you for this prayer and thank you for your word. I know it was so much, but yet I ask that you would take this line upon line, precept upon precept, and put it deep into our hearts. Oh God, that we might know you. That we truly might not want to split hairs over what's carnal and what's permissive and what's not permissive. We would just set out to say, is this loving God fully? Is this pleasing you? Is this loving you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is this fully pleasing to you? And we would never bend past that. That we would walk in a manner worthy of you. Not because we're condemned if we don't. 
Not because we feel condemnation at all when we don't, but just because we love you and we know that you've got us in your hand. We know that our name's in the book of life and, and you've already seen us enjoying ourselves in heaven. And so, Lord, we just ask now that in this little vapor of time we have, a year, 10 years, 20 years, maybe 50 years, we would walk step by step by step, day by day alone, not worrying about tomorrow, but just today to live holy, righteous, sanctified, set apart for your use this day. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.